When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's episode, I speak to Caridwin Dovey. She's written three books. Her debut novel, Blood Kin, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Award and selected for the US National Book Foundation's prestigious Five Under 35. Her second book, Only the Animals, won the inaugural 2014 Readings New Australian Writing Award. We're here, though, to talk about her third novel, In the Garden of the Fugitives. It's a book about obsession and guilt and power dynamics, and it seems incredibly timely, even though Caridwin was working on this book for so many years before this whole explosion of Me Too. It's about Vita, who was a young Harvard student who gets an endowment from a benefactor, Royce, who's much, much older and obviously holds the financial keys to her success. Vita had forbidden Royce to contact her and now the book starts, it's 20 years later and these emails go back and forth to try and make sense of what's happened, what happened in their lives back then and then what happened in the 20 years since. As you will hear, Caridwin is incredibly um, articulate and gentle, and the themes in this book very much touch on some of her own experiences of growing up in apartheid South Africa. And I have to say that she has a fourth book out that's Writers on Writing, and it's all about how J.M. Kutsia, the South African writer who's now an Australian resident, um, how his work affected her life and also how it affected her mother's life. So it's a very poignant conversation and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I was nervous and I was lucky enough to be in her apartment. We were curled up on couches drinking rooibos, the South African tea, and yeah, I just think this one is a kind of a quiet, um, a quiet, different conversation. So, yeah, come along with us. One of the things we have in common is that we were both in college in America in around 2002. Um, I was at Cornell as an exchange student and I believe you were at Harvard during that time. Yeah. And in the book... Uh, Vita, um, the protagonist, I would say, with Royce, she has that experience of being at Harvard. And I'm wondering, obviously you poured a lot of your own experience into Vita, even though she's not you by any means, but why was it so important to capture that college experience and being an outsider in that elite American college experience? Oh, yes, that's a really good question. Um, I guess part of it is that I find myself, the further I get away from that college experience, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but the more it feels like a dream that happened that wasn't quite real. And I think that feeling that I'm sort of trying to capture in the book of, of youth and the entitlement of youth and the way that... Um, you just take these things, these incredible opportunities that if you're lucky seem to land on your lap, you know, out of nowhere. And you know you're lucky and you're grateful, you know, at some level, but you also just take it in your stride. And, you know, 
when I went off to Harvard, I'd never even been to America before. And um, when I think back to that, you know, I think I was 17, that 17 year old and turning up in this strange country, I didn't even really know what a liberal arts degree meant. I didn't know what anthropology was and that's what I ended up studying there. I had no idea of the culture or what I was getting myself into. And, you know, it's such an intense experience because you're living for four years with these people. Um, and now I look back and I'm I'm sort of both uh, admiring and bewildered by that, by that girl. Um, and so I think in the book, I was trying to recreate that sense of... Um, Vita as she is an outsider and she's going into that situation, you know, very much aware that this is not her, her place. Um, but also she just kind of, you know, rolls with the punches and finds a community and a way of doing things. And, um, yeah. And I think that's something that with, getting older, not that we're old or, or anything, but, you know, we're approaching a different time in our lives where you do start to sort of glance backwards over your shoulder and try and make sense of who you were. I'm realising more and more that those years at college were probably the most important years of my life. And um, I think they're going to fuel me creatively for a very long time and I didn't expect that and even in the years immediately afterwards I didn't really think of them as that but with the distance I think that those four years are the thing you know the thing that uh, is now very interesting to me and trying to unpack. And this back and forth this idea of being an outsider can you talk about your family's travels back and forth from South Africa to Australia and how did you ever feel like one place was more home than the other or how did being in America make you reflect on either country? Um, yeah, we kind of moved. So I was born in South Africa, but then we moved back and forth, I think something like five or six times from when I was two to when I was eight long story but sort of for political reasons and um, then was back there through to 95 and then came to high school in Sydney just for the last year of, years of high school and then went to America so I think when I was in college in America the obsessive nature of my engagement with South Africa was probably the consequence of feeling like you know I'd had this heritage and um, but then had left the last time when I was 14 right as the country had gone through this miraculous transition so I hadn't yet had time to truly you know process what that meant and um, it was a weird time to leave um, my parents then ended up going back to South Africa my sister and I lived alone in a flat across the road from school. Really? Yeah. So through through year, from year nine to year twelve. We, oh my goodness! Um, sorry, year ten for me. Year ten to year twelve, we lived on our own, and my parents would. One of them would try and visit when they could. So they were both academics back in South Africa. So one would come for a month, then we'd be on our own for a few months, then the, the other one now? would come. Not really. Um, but my sister was seventeen and I was fifteen, so I don't think it was legal. Were you good girls or did you make the most yeah, of it? Yeah, no. I mean, we were so I wish responsible. I'd known <laughs> No, we were so not fun to hang around with because I think the weight of the responsibility, we had to behave responsibly, you know, and it's kind of changed how I think about parenting. I think we, we want our kids to be responsible, but we never give them any responsibility. Whereas, you know, my parents really took a chance and we were good girls at that point already, but who knows, we could have gone off the rails. But I think actually it meant that we were even more uh, aware of, you know, the trust that they were putting in us. And anytime anyone was like, let's have a party at your place, we just said, you know, no, um, because we'd have to clean up. And I think also that thing of bad behavior, needing an audience, you know, the performative aspect of teenage playing up, it's, it's to annoy your parents. It and is, you're right. And they weren't there, there to they see it. They weren't there to see it. So, um, 
yeah, I sometimes wonder when my oldest son turns 15, if I'm going to have some sort of delayed breakdown, because I remember those as very happy years and actually really healthy for our relationship with our parents. And um, look, I wouldn't, you know, choose to do that again, but I think the way that it worked out was was really good. It, it made us from quite a young age aware that, you know, um, we had to find our own passions and our own motivations. And um, so we did all our schoolwork and homework because we wanted to, like no one was ever kind of breathing down our necks or... And also manage the finances of an apartment or just buying the groceries and working out how much if you spent that this week. I was the minister of finance, even though I was the younger one. (laughs) So we used to go to Woolies together on a Saturday afternoon and sort of argue about, look, we ate a lot of pre-made pasta, um, you know, those ravioli that used to take three minutes to cook. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, But yeah, we paid all, my parents paid the rent and paid the bills, but we still had to, you know, back in those days physically... And email had only just become a sort of family, a thing that, you know, normal people would use. So that also made it possible because we would email them every day. Um, And so they always knew what was going on and we had that kind of daily kind of contact with them. That must have made your and your sister's relationship so strong. It did. It really did. Um, You know, we still laugh about those years and just funny things that happened and um she flooded the apartment once she was talking to her boyfriend on the phone and had left the tap on in the laundry so we had to move out and live with friends for a month because she flooded it so badly that they (laughs) they had to replace all the carpets oh my god um uh I had a car accident and uh, it was it was there was some drama but um yeah in the book It seems like you've picked these two places. Harvard is one place where Vita meets Royce, the other, the man that she um, corresponds in these emails to throughout the book. So there's this idea of patronage there. But then can you talk about how in Pompeii, the other place where this novel takes place, there's this patronage there as well. And I hadn't really made the connection, but it seems like as artists, we forget that the history is that people with money tie supporting, but there's always strings attached mm. to the money you might get as an artist. Well, you're the first person who's ever made that connection. And I don't even know if I had really made that connection as I was writing it. So thank uh-huh. you for making that. <laughs> um, yeah, now that you say that, I suppose that... Um, the mystery uh, question in the Pompeii section is who are these fugitives, you know? So um, the characters are over in Pompeii and it's the 70s and they're on an archaeological dig and the 13 figures have, um, you know, been, well, their body cavities um, have been discovered. And I guess the mystery is, of who they are is bound up with um, a form of patronage that, you know, gradually Kitty, the one character, is trying to make a case that, um, you know, it was a certain kind of garden where they were found um, and that it could possibly have been a market garden where roses were grown to be sold, but under the patronage of a much wealthier Pompeian man who would have had, you know, freed slaves um, having to work for him um, sort of as his, you know, um, not employees. They didn't have a lot of um, rights or anything. But, yeah, they. it was a kind of power dynamic that um, she's really interested in exploring. But I actually had, I hadn't thought of that parallel between Royce and Kitty and the way that Royce gives her, you know, this fellowship to, um, you know, be good at something um, and keep producing some kind of output and that idea of Pompeian patronage. It just seems that there's always strings attached to something when it comes to often the art making process or this idea of which you go into so much about when someone sees potential in you and they're willing to help support that potential 
what they want in return. Yes. And um, I guess that's another thing that is only becoming clearer to me um, as we raise our heads up from from true youth. I mean, the privileges of youth um, have suddenly become really starkly apparent to me. And I think that's sort of what I was trying to process in the book. And one of the things is that idea of potential and um, and ambition. And I think for young women, these words have a kind of charge that perhaps they don't have for men. Um, and so when Royce is holding this, it's sort of dangling this fellowship, you know, it's a fellowship for talented women, young women with potential um, and you have to sort of jump through many hoops of fire to get it and in Vita's case you have to also be prepared to play the game according to his rules without really understanding, you know, exactly what's going on. It's it's a funny kind of thing of, um, again, having women believe that um, it's their talent that's getting them further in the world and not their, just the very fact of their youthful femaleness. And so the scene in the book that I think kind of best demonstrates that is that first class that she goes to where she's, you know, the feminist class on feminism and the tutor who's 40 or approaching 40, you know, and with all these young 18-year-olds and ask, she asks them, have any of you ever felt discriminated against for being a woman? And this was true. I was in a class like this and um, and no one put up their hand. Um, I mean, I guess actually that, that would not happen now. In a weird way, we are of a pre-Me Too era where um, I even remember in that situation sort of thinking, yeah, no, I haven't, haven't been discriminated against as a woman and, you know, almost getting a bit prickly at this intimation that that was normal. And, um, and then she did have this sort of quite sad rant at us about, you know, wait, just wait, wait until you are my age and you will see that the doors will start to slam in your faces and you will see that what you thought was, you know, uh, advancement because of ability was in fact that you were advancing in a world that's ruled by men um, who will let you go so far as young women but will not let you go any further once that's no longer your, you know, your currency. Um so, yeah, it's the thing that Royce does. Um, it's not bad, you know. It's not a horrific thing that he does to Vita, and it's all very um, ambiguous. But right when I was finishing writing the book, the Harvey Weinstein um, scandal broke. So the you know the Me Too stuff was just kind of gathering steam, um, and something that Gia Tolentino wrote for The New Yorker about that case just really struck home because it was, I realised it was what I was trying to express through this um, sort of sticky engagement between Royce and Vita. Um, and she said that it's men like, like Weinstein who, through their actions, make a young woman who is talented and ambitious um, by hitching that talent forever in her mind to the fact that she has a female body and then um, making her, by, by attacking that body, making her forever after question the validity of her own talent. And she says it much more eloquently than that. But that was a shocking thing for me to read. And I think it's a kind of, um, that's the true, what's the secondary violence of those kinds of um you know, that form of power abuse because um, you can never again trust, I think, if that's happened to you as a young woman when you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just trying to get ahead in the world. Um, not only do you feel like at some level you were complicit in it because how dare you ask for more than you deserved, how dare you be ambitious and think that you deserved to advance in the world, but then, you know, you wonder did I even have any talent? And that's a terrible thing to do to any young person, but it's another kind of level of um, 
of thinking, I think, and it's something where um, this movement, even if Me Too has gone to its own extremes and, you know, excesses, um, that's a really, that to me was the most important part of that conversation. Haven't we all? Have you? I feel like I have been in a situation like the one in the book. And yet, because it was helping me creatively, I managed it. So it was very interesting reading something similar. I mean, very actually different in many ways, obviously. Yeah. But realizing that I had in some way agreed to the rules of engagement as long as they didn't go, as long as the, there were boundaries, I would stay in the game like Vita does. Yeah. And I, didn't, I just wondered what it said about me and what does it say about her that she stays in it. Also, he's just so well done in terms of being like slightly creepy and sinister and then not, which I think is exactly how certain people operate. Mm. You know, he manages to get the keys so he can self-deliver all the envelopes, you know, to these women saying that they have won the fellowship. He's somehow allowed to go into the dorm so he can slip them under their doors himself. To me, that was so sinister and mm. so telling in this one act of overstepping a boundary that's so clear, yet what? how power, how other people, even to allow him the keys, someone only did that because he was rich and powerful. Yeah. I think a lot about what would I say to daughters if they were going off to college, you know, um, at that age, how would you try and warn them about these situations? And uh, when you were telling your story there, you seemed to sort of express that almost as if it was your fault or that there was some culpability there. And I think that's not the case at all, you know, and I think that's where when we... um, have dug deeper into these issues, you know, those ideas of consent and um, and what we should be prepared to put up with and how you can be doing something and seeming like you're perfectly happy doing it and dying inside. Like that's, um, that's really, it's really interesting. It's really disturbing that we felt that and didn't do anything about it. But it's good that we can now speak about it and process it and have been given the language, I suppose, to um, voice the complexities of mm. of that. Well, and also the, that innocence of youth that you still have when you're young and even, you know, it doesn't necessarily go away at a certain point. I think this whole discussion about power is so interesting because it really means that the person who is in that position, whether it's a man or a woman, needs to abide by the rules of that position. Because often as a young person, you you almost, you do want to engage mm. with these powerful people. Conversation is so good. So there's so many parts of it that are so alluring. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're being sucked into this new adult realm, which is where you want to be so badly, but actually to get there on your own merits, you need the time and experience. And you think you can just have a like, little elevator yes. up there through yeah. someone else. Yeah. And actually people do that. I mean, people do attach themselves to other people and yeah, kind of go in different directions. Yeah. And I guess that's why that is such a funny time in our lives because we are so wise and so stupid, you know, at the same time. I mean, I guess that still goes for now, but we have to be brave in a way in those years, you know. We, we're often alone and we're out in the world on our own and um, trying new things and trying to form an identity and 
So yeah, when you get an opportunity that looks like it could help you, yeah, fast track. I liked that expression, your way into an adult world that you already sort of feel like you belong in. It's it's sometimes hard to resist that temptation. And I feel that sometimes other people, you know, the periphery people, or particularly older women, of course they know what's happening. They see it. But somehow you think you're, you're that person, we think we're the exception, you know. They don't understand how exceptional I am. I'm meant to be here. But that other woman with the experience knows this is how it's playing out. Yeah, she's seen it all before. And yeah. then we will be that woman. Yeah, we're heading towards being that <laughs> <Yeah>. woman. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but I guess that woman can be a... Um, a wonderful kind of benevolent guide. Um, there's two ways you can play that, right? Like you can be the the naysayer who's trying to spell out something, these, this terrible thing that's going to happen, or you can just try and be there and be kind and be aware of what's happening and try and hold to accountability the men of your own age who you know, you may actually have a little bit of power over at that point in your in your life in a way that young women don't. Vita has a creative reckoning in a way where she works out she's chosen the wrong medium, but she doesn't know where to go next. And she's... She goes back to South Africa to try and understand, I guess, who she is and her past, but she can only fix her camera on plants, animals, and um, she avoids people at all costs and almost avoids turning that camera on herself in a way. In, that, in her journey, when, when for you did she start to have to look inwards to heal in some way. And Vida, I think we talked earlier, she's not nice particularly. I identify with her a lot. But when was when did she really have to reflect on herself to even move forward in any way? Yeah, I guess um, I was sort of playing in those sections with um, commenting on my past writing outputs and, um, because I had up to the point of writing in the Garden of the Fugitives, I had steered so very far away from anything that could ever be autobiographical um, for, uh, yeah, I suppose ethical reasons, but also reasons of artistic uncertainty um, because I had felt like I wasn't sure where I was writing from or where I had the right to write from as a white South African. And so early on I found the fable form so helpful because it could let me say something without having it sort of be attached to saying something about South Africa. Um, and so my first novel was sort of a political allegory where it's not set anywhere and, you know, there's no names or the setting is left very um, ambiguous. And then there were many failed projects, but then the second book that I published was this series of stories told from the perspectives of dead animals. So Vita's kind of way of going back to South Africa and then obsessing over the plants and animals. I'm sort of having a bit of a laugh at myself and how, um, you know, it's not that I disown that work at all. I think, um, sort of being forced to find another way to say something was a really good creative challenge for me. And, yeah, so I had tried to then come at some of these themes obliquely through the eyes of animals who died in these conflicts, but again, had not written anything about South Africa, not even in that book where I did each animal is in a particular conflict and in a particular country. The closest I got to South Africa was Mozambique. <laughs> and so with this book, it was a very conscious choice. I felt like there was something blocking me, um, which sounds cliched, but it felt very, it felt physical. It felt like, you know, I need to get over this self-consciousness about 
whether I should be, whether I should, you know, mute myself um, and that, that if that would be the right thing to do and come to terms with the fact that I'm a writer, like I've, you know, owned that for the first time because I think there was so much um, illegitimacy and feelings of guilt and, um, yeah, as someone from a class of perpetrators, it's a very different thing to write autobiographical fiction compared to, you know, a lot of the kind of first person witnessing um, uh, literature that we see and that we celebrate is often told from a victim's perspective. It's sort of like a witnessing of wrongdoing against a people or a place or um, a community. And that's as it should be, because it's that power of, you know, witnessing and speaking truth to power. And literature can be the form in which you do that. But I didn't have access to that trope at all. Um, and so I had, in order to say something and and be witness to something, I'd had to play with perspective and these other forms. But in this book, I decided to um, sort of tackle it head on and play with the, I, the very idea of literature as therapy. And so, you know, Vita in the book has this block and she tries some of the same methods that I tried in my fiction. So she... Um, is obsessed with South Africa but can't actually film the people. You know, she's filming the plants and the animals and it's ridiculous. And um, and it's, it's only much later that um, she, you know, as she has failed as an artist when she has not produced anything and has come to a real impasse in her career as a filmmaker, um, that she can begin to look back at um, these therapy, unusual experimental therapy sessions that she ended up doing when she was living in Cape Town um, with a black therapist called Magdalene, who's prepared to sort of use um, these strange um, methods of psychotherapy to get Vita to, I suppose, begin to give herself permission to craft a narrative from her past. And for me, the the, the pull of understanding literature as therapy is that, um, you know, like with psychotherapy, which I've never actually been in therapy, but I'm very interested in it. And um, it, it's literature and psychotherapy both use language as a way of rescuing a, um, I suppose, a sense of meaning. Um, so you wrest meaning out of your life by giving it form and structure. Um and if you're lucky, you reach a, you know, a point of catharsis in having done that. Um, but of course, literature, as much as psychoanalysis, probably, it's also that you're in inventing your past. So you're not just recalling it, you're inventing it. And that's the true freedom, you know, to sort of say there are many versions of our past, even in our own minds. It depends on which one you're going to pick on any particular day, you know, the selves that we contain and the, um, there is no one past that any one of us has lived. And so what I really appreciate about literature and the novel in particular is that it lets you invent a past and play with it and sort of make it by taking it outside of your head and crafting it, you're able to sort of look at it um, in a new light and see it as something um, that actually you can let go of. Um, so I found it very helpful to write this book. Um, I will never write about South Africa again. I think I can say that with absolute certainty. I think something about writing this book has let me really let that go. And at the same time, let go the sort of moral neediness of having to always foreground that I'm a white South African when actually that's not really my identity anymore. I'm Australian and this is where I live and probably will always live and this country is my future and I have a long history here. And, you know, so yeah, that, that feels like a kind of form of empowerment after many years of feeling, um, that I should silence myself or that I couldn't approach this stuff in my own fiction. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think I'll do it again, but it was, it was helpful in doing it this time. Vita seems to really struggle, or at least she has a, an epiphany of sorts or an awareness when 
Magdalena asks her to separate out um, guilt and shame. Can you explain the differences between them and how, if you can unpack which version is which, it can help to move forward or to let go of some of the blame that we place on ourselves? Yeah, and I mean, if in, anyone who's interested in that, um, I my thinking was influenced by Brene Brown. Um, she's got a wonderful book where she sort of un- does exactly that. And reading, I'm now forgetting what the book is called, but um, reading the book, I had never thought of the difference between guilt and shame. Um, guilt is feeling bad for doing something wrong. Um, shame is just feeling bad and not really knowing why. Um, and the interesting thing that she points out is that shame is a very sort of narcissistic emotion. Guilt is actually quite a healthy emotion because that feeling of knowing you've done something wrong means you often then um, pushed to take the action to, you know, apologize, the necessary kind of atonement. Whereas shame, because it's secretive and there's not one thing that you can pinpoint, it festers and it makes you sort of obsess over it and stay inside your own head. And so it's not, it doesn't force you out to, again, be accountable for whatever it is that you feel that you do, but it um, actually forces you inward in an unhealthy way. But then she also makes a third category for chronic guilt, which she puts in the same category as shame. So chronic guilt guilt is, um, yeah, I guess exactly what it sounds like. It's that feeling of guilt, but it's coming often and repetitively and um, can have that same um, effect on you as shame. And so when I read that, I thought, oh, yeah, that's probably what I've got. I've got chronic guilt um, around this identity as a white South African. And, you know, even though my parents were totally on the right side of um, political history in that regard and, you know, our lives were affected by my dad's activism, but I still can't get past that thing of the privileges that accrue to us um, because of our our birth, you know, and the randomness, the arbitrary nature of that, um, and that I still am a beneficiary of, even though apartheid's now gone, you know, those benefits just as the harm that it's done stay with us for decades. I think the privileges do too. And how do we account for those? Um, so yeah, Brene Brown's thinking was very helpful to me. And, um, so I, um, usually in my fiction, I draw on all sorts of stuff that I've been reading and my source lists at the end are always very long and not for it to look like, look how much research I've done, but because I'm, I do want to pay tribute to, you know, um, I think of literature in a way as a sort of collaborative project of, you know, you're reading and you're cannibalizing stuff and you're metabolizing it at different rates and you, it comes out in, you know, I I sort of use literature as a tool to think with. Um, So in each of the novels, you know, the things that I'm reading in other forms, um, so the history and the theory and the, um, all those kinds of things, they come out in the novel, you know, so it helps me. It's like a tool to think with, but I wouldn't be able to do that thinking without leaning on the thinking of all these other people. So I try and sort of make sure I, I you know, acknowledge that in the in the sources. Has one of your other obsessions, which is science and scientists, did that feed into this book or has that interest come after this book? Yeah, no, I think um, it's very much part of this book um, because uh, what really got me excited about the Pompeii sections was the work of two female scientists, um, one of whom is Estelle Laser, and she's actually an Australian archaeologist and she's still working on the um, casts in the Garden of the Fugitives. But she pioneered the study of human remains in Pompeii but up to the point where she... Um, made it a field of study in the 80s. Um, I think it was in the 80s or maybe the 90s. Um, The skeletons had just been all chucked as they are in the book, in the Sano baths and no one saw any kind of value in them. Um, 
the body casts were very interesting to people. And of course, some of those body casts contain the skeletons of people because of the way they were made. They had to pour the plaster into this cavity that was, had, you know, negatively decomposed, if that makes sense. Um, and so Estelle's study of these human skeletons just absolutely fascinated me. And um, we've actually been, we've never met, but um, after the book came out, she wrote me a really lovely email. And I was always a little bit worried, you know, I credit her in the acknowledgements because she was such a big influence, all her writings were such a big influence. But um, luckily she was okay with, you know, having had some of her um, research and her insights sort of um, transposed into the book. And and then we've stayed in touch and she just got in touch recently and she's they're actually x-raying the fugitives themselves. So these 13 body casts in Pompeii and they're, um, they're making a documentary about it. So she couldn't tell me yet what they had discovered, but it was the first time they can't fit into She usually she uses CT scans, but these ones don't fit into the um, scanning machines because of the angles of the arms and legs um so they had to x-ray them but she said the findings were really interesting so later in the year she's going to share those with me so we may you know get a little bit closer to understanding more scientifically about who these people were instead of the kind of made-up stories that we've had about them since they were found in the 60s do you feel for you that you have that you're committed to the writing life now yes yes <laughs> No, I really struggle with this. Um, writing's never been the only thing, even before having kids. So it's not like I'm um, blaming it on, you know, my particular circumstances now. So um, I was always either studying. So I went back to New York and did a PhD or tried to do a PhD in anthropology that I ended up dropping out of. Um, so I was either doing that and then trying to write novels. And then when I moved to Sydney, I got a job as an environmental researcher. So I was doing that and trying to write novels and then um, having kids and, you know, being a mum has been my dominant and main identity for the past seven years. But um, that's a big job. And then I've also been doing the freelance stuff. Um, so writing fiction has always kind of been this other thing and... I quite like having it like that. I think it takes the pressure off for me um, because it still feels like a scary thing to do and it keeps it feeling like um, a guilty pleasure. I had a professor actually in Cape Town once who used to write, um, he was an economics professor and he would have one screen up in his office that had his novel on it and he had another screen that was just, you know, for admin. And so even if he had five minutes in between student meetings or consultations or whatever, he'd sort of do a sneaky five minutes of writing on his novel. <laughs> and I always thought, oh yeah, that's kind of how I feel. I'm not that extreme, but I like feeling like I'm getting away with something when I'm writing fiction. If I, if that was the thing and yeah, that would be terrifying. It would really scare me. Um, so I think I have to almost trick myself into feeling like it doesn't matter so that I can have the, somehow find the courage or arrogance, whatever you want to call it, to think that I can do it. You wrote another book in the Writers on Writers series about, how do I say his name properly? J.M. Kutzia. Kutzia. Yes. Um, <laughs> I remember reading Disgrace and ha how it had such a huge impact on me, but you grew up, well, you explain in that how as a child your mum was breastfeeding you while she was doing, writing one of, well, the first scholarly book on his work. So you, I'm imagining that you had a mum who was quite, singularly focused on her work and on you as a child and with a family. But that seemed like a beautiful example of how to be a, a woman. Mm. And I'm wondering how that's influenced how you are a woman. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, I feel so lucky that I got to write that little book um, and it was something that 
you know, um, I would never have written about that without being given the assignment. So sometimes it's so nice to be taken out of your own habits of thought and projects just with something that kind of comes out of the blue. And so when um, Chris, the publisher at Black Ink, asked me if I'd like to write on Kutsia, initially I said, no, absolutely not. The idea is terrifying. And and then I thought about it a little bit and I said to him, look, I can only do this through the lens of my mum and her engagement with his work. Is that okay? And it'll be quite, you know, sort of memoir-ish. And he said, yep, that's fine. You know, give it a go. And the thing that was so lovely for me to write about was, um, yeah, I, I feel like it's often the conversations about, you know, women and work and life and family um, are they're often seen as like a negative thing that the you can only have one or the other or that they will definitely detract that you need to make a choice you know um and you know Jenny Ophel the American writer's work which I love like the Department of Speculation is one of my favorite books and but in the book you know she talks about how she's been a tried to be a writer and then she's had a child and she's kind of outside of that scene and she's envious of people who can be art monsters who can just you know live for their art but I kind of wanted to show a different side to it in this book and it's um, all thanks to my mom that she could model that for me um, in what felt like a graceful way, maybe, you know, and actually I think that is true because we've talked about it a lot. She was always working through our childhood, but she was also um, incredibly, you know, present and engaged as a mother. Um, she did have the flexible work of an academic, so I think that was a big part of it. And my dad was an academic and a very hands-on dad too. So they had that flexibility and they were lucky, but... Um, I have found in my own experience that um, in having kids and sort of the mess and the chaos of domestic life, um, I feel like it has enriched the place that I'm writing from and I feel grateful for that. Um, and I often think about, um, you know, there was some beautiful lines that Sylvia Plath wrote in her journal, which are very poignant given that, you know, she actually chose to kill herself and when her children were so young. Um, but earlier in her life, she um, writes really beautifully that about how she doesn't want to be like Virginia Woolf, um, who, you know, was was aware that, you know, for her having kids was going to be a disaster and so made a, a choice and not to. Um, but Sylvia Plath says something like, you know, I want books and babies and beef stew and I will have my children and write better for it. And um, quite an unusual sentiment, you know, and one that's sort of lost to history. Um, of course, then after the breakdown of her marriage and having no support systems around her, um, reading those final journal entries is very devastating because you can see the toll that that is taking on her and that that balance that she'd hoped to find has and that I think she and Ted had had when they had you know been a part of a supportive um, couple uh, co-parenting the children I think she actually did find that so yeah it's a warning I suppose that these things can very quickly fall out of balance um, without you even being aware. But for now, I hope that, um, yeah, I mean, life is chaotic, um, but somehow I feel like it's um, nice to do the physical work of, you know, family life. It's very physical, um, caring for young kids. Um, and then it's sort of emotional at the same time. It's a funny kind of work. So it's drawing on your intellectual, your spiritual, your emotional and your physical um, energies. And so then it's lovely to have work where I can escape in my mind and go somewhere else. And toggling back and forth between those two seems to work for me for now. And then what is the project that is up next that we can all follow? So we've been chatting a little bit about this, but um, just the strong feeling that I have right now is of wanting to let all my voices out. Um, 
which makes me sound like a crazy person, which is possibly what I am. But um, I guess the beauty of having done this now for 18 years, um, been working at the craft of writing. So whether that's the fiction writing or the nonfiction or the freelance writing, or even the academic or the environmental research, like I feel like I've been working at the craft for 18 years. Um, and so I've got a sort of perspective now of looking back and seeing that I do have certain um, patterns of behavior or bad habits or good habits or things that are obsessions for me that you can only, again, see in hindsight when you see them sort of rearing their head repeatedly. Um, and I like the idea that you're adding with each book that you write, you get to add to the conversation that you're having with yourself. And for me, each book is quite different from the one that came before. And I used to think that was going to be my greatest weakness. And so now I'm thinking I might be ready to just explore other voices in my fiction too. Um, I'm really interested in the moment in collaborative writing. I've never done anything like that, but it seems interesting to me. And then I have a um, novel that I'm um, thinking about uh, doing as an audiobook exclusive and it will only exist in that form is sort of like a parallel form, almost like a dream form because it's, it will circulate differently and it's experienced differently, you know, um, to reading a, a physical book. Um, so that seems very appealing to me in a way of experimenting with, you know, um, actually letting that voice out and be heard. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much for chatting. Thanks, Angie. This conversation was so special. I really took out of it how much our childhood experiences can shape. If you're a creative person, what will always come in and out of your work? There are these themes that we need to unravel. And in Carriageman's case, she's done it in so many ways. For so long, she used fable and other, other mechanisms to try and um, explore her South African history. And in this book, she kind of is willing to face it a little more head-on through a character like Vita. And I just appreciate that, and I can't wait to rediscover her, her other works. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure to look up her work. And if you have any other books that you think have captured the themes that we're talking about today... Uh, let me know at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.